All right, well, this morning uh, we are not in the book of Daniel. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to um, pick that back up in January. Uh, but I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. We've actually been through this passage before, and Pastor John as well had actually gone through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, but I thought it would be appropriate for us to always consider our hearts before God. Matthew chapter 15, we're going to be looking at the first 20 verses, and so we'll walk through uh, this passage. <clears throat> As uh, many of you know, uh, Carolyn and I have three children, and... Uh, she would hate me for doing this, but happy birthday, honey. Uh, we have uh, three children. Yay! Uh, um, the Lord has blessed us, and we have three children, uh, very energetic, um, which means that there are actually plenty of opportunities for conflict between them. And when that happens, um, we do our best to, to teach them, to, to reconcile uh, but that doesn't always work out smoothly, as, as, as other parents know. Sometimes uh, when we uh, have our child, uh, any child apologize to another, that apology is in the form of running around, looking around, and screaming out, Sorry! That, that was the apology. And at that point, well, Carolyn and I, we, we do need to call out what we are deeming an unacceptable apology, and really, a, you can even call it a phony apology. I know this is the analogy is a, uh, isn't a hundred you know percent. It's not one to one because as parents we do need to teach that, um, but uh, there are you know indicators that there's just a, a lack of sincerity there sometimes. And then as adults, I'm confident that many of us would conclude that we can spot a phony, say, apology or a response. I think we would say that we know when we hear a response that we would identify as unacceptable. We know when we're getting a reply that is not only unacceptable to us, but actually downright insulting. Right? Say somebody hurts you, purposely and deeply hurts you, and their response to you is, yeah, 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 you know, I'm sorry, you know. Are you happy now? We would quickly spot, and that's just not a, uh, an acceptable uh, response. But that's actually not what we're, we're, we're considering this morning. What we're considering this morning is the question of what about spotting uh, what a phony is, an unacceptable response as it, as it pertains to God. When it comes to what God considers acceptable from his children, can we spot the difference between what God considers honoring versus dishonoring? What is a delight in his eyes versus what is defiled? 
what is pure versus profane. You know, I've just used the words throughout the, both the Old and New Testament, these words, words that refer to the believer's response to God, which is worship that God receives. All right, that which is honoring, that which is a delight, that which is pure, as opposed to sacrifices of worship that are actually dishonoring, defiled, profane, which he does not accept. And nothing has changed. God doesn't change. The way he receives worship, worship hasn't changed. God has always and has only accepted what is pure, not profane what is honoring, not dishonoring, and what is a delight to him, not defiled. So another way of asking the question that this passage in Matthew 15 answers for us is, what does vain worship look like? That's kind of another way of thinking about this question. What does vain worship look like? Meaningless worship, empty worship, right? A a response that God considers unacceptable. Can we spot it? Can you recognize it? I'm not talking about the person next to you. I'm talking about you, me, in our hearts. Can we spot in our hearts what God considers acceptable versus unacceptable? So guys, here, the the stakes don't get any higher. Being able to recognize and identify vain worship that we would offer God versus true worship, right? that which is profane versus pure it has at stake God's glory. Right? So in terms of our response to God, our worship of God, our lives before God, it's the question, are we glorifying God in our response to him, in our worship of him? And I, I do believe this passage, Scripture itself, it, it helps us examine our hearts before God. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through this passage and we're going to see Jesus interacting with these Pharisees and scribes as he often did in the gospel accounts. And he addresses this issue, Jesus does, this issue of what really honors God versus what dishonors God. And guys, that's at the heart of worship, isn't it? It's what honors God, knowing what really matters to God versus what doesn't. And in turn, that needs to inform our hearts as to what should matter to us. Okay, so we're going to see, and I'll break down this passage into uh, three parts. By the way, do, do we have an outline today? Is there an outline? There? Yes? No? Okay, just wondering. Okay. It's kind of a last minute thing. Okay, so we're, we're going to see that there's three parts, and I'll describe them. Okay, so... Uh, in, in the outset, Jesus is going to get these accusations, right? The, the Pharisees and scribes are going to accuse Jesus. And what do they use? What do they always use? Guys, they use man's standards, right? And then Jesus is going to respond with God's standards, and then he will explain things, okay? So uh, another way to Kind of ask the question, what is this passage about? What are we learning from, uh, learning about in Scripture this morning? What defiles man's worship of God? Right? How do we root out defilement in our hearts? What does vain worship look like? Okay, so here's a setting. Uh, Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. 
where man's external standards we see are not God's standards. Okay, so look at what the Pharisees are doing. Follow with me, Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Starting from verse 1, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Okay, so here's the setting. These Pharisees and scribes are accusing Jesus, namely his disciples, of transgressing, that word break the tradition of elders, right? They're they're transgressing uh, this tradition of elders. Notice what the Pharisees did not say. They did not say, hey, you broke God's law. No. They said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? What is he talking about? This tradition of the elders is also referred to oral tradition, right? Guys, we had Old Testament law, and then what the rabbis had was they had these commentaries. So there are even scrolls, and they would write on the sides, in the, in the side columns, right? They had these wide margin things like we do today, and they would write commentary. And then there's even a commentary on the commentary, uh, Midrash, Talmud, all these, these things, okay? The problem is, they took these things and made that the law, right? These oral traditions, these tradition of the elders. They passed these down. What were they doing, these disciples? They were eating, right? uh, The end of verse 2, they do not wash their hands when they eat, okay? You see in the LSB, uh, literally eating bread, right? Koreans know this because the the wording for eating a meal, one way of saying it is just eating rice, it's literal. So it's very similar, eating bread. And what that is, is it's just, a, it's just an ordinary meal, right? You didn't have to be ceremoniously cleansed for just eating bread. Okay, guys, we're not talking about sanitary issues of washing your hands. I mean, we know today we should probably wash our hands, okay? But that's not what we're talking about here. All they were doing uh, was eating an ordinary meal. And here's the thing. Guys, there was no Old Testament command that you had to wash your hands for these ordinary meals. But as oral tradition passed down, they made it law. Okay? They called it, you know, putting a fence around the law. Now, let me try to bring that home for us today. Because we're, 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 we're talking about Pharisees, scribes, uh, tradition of the elders. What does that even mean for us today? Well, let me just give you an example first. Let me give you an example of putting a fence around the law. Okay? and taking it to an extreme. We know that texting while driving is illegal. Yes? Okay, we know that. Confess, I struggle with that. Okay, so, uh, uh, so that's illegal, but guys, is using the GPS on your phone, is that illegal? No, it is not. So it is not illegal to have your phone there hands-free, right, and you're looking at the GPS. Okay, but here's, here's an example of modern day putting a fence around the law. Okay, because texting while driving is illegal, if you want to be holy, you got to take that phone and you got to stick it in the trunk before you drive. Okay, and if you don't, you're sinning. Okay, you see, we took that way too far, right? We're putting a fence around that law. Okay, but then the problem is when you start taking traditions of man and you start making that law and you say that it's sin, well, now we have a problem. Right? Because now you're going around saying, hey, I, I don't see you doing what we as, as man are doing. You're sinning. Right? And I think we can all think of uh, the, the examples that we live with today where it's not even biblical 
It's just the tradition of man. And now we're going to turn around and call each other sinners. Okay, so this is why we need to consider this passage and be careful and, and examine our hearts. Okay, uh, quick note on the Old Testament and the law. Guys, there's nothing ever wrong with the Old Testament. It was just never in, an, in and of itself enough for, uh, to, to save you. To grant you righteousness. And I'm, all I'm doing is paraphrasing Galatians chapter 3. Okay, the, the Old Testament law, it was never possible for anyone to become righteousness on their own through the law. Sadly, these guys thought it did. And they even added to it. Right? It wasn't even the law anymore. Kind of like this cell phone in the trunk business. That's not even the law. It was the tradition of the elders. Oral tradition. Guys, man's standards. And Jesus is now going to explain now that that, that these traditions of man, these external standards, guys, they are not God's standards, which is what he's going to explain. In fact, there's something very wrong here. When you start taking God's law, God's word, God's commands, and saying, hey, you know what? We don't need that. All we need is this, what we made up, man's standards. right? And that's what you and I need to be careful of today. All right, so our second section, uh, chapter 15, verses 3 through 9, we see that Jesus is going to respond now, right? So the the Pharisees and, and, and scribes accused Jesus, accused his disciples of violating man's standards. And what does Jesus respond with? God's standards, right? Man's external standards in the first point, they're not God's standards, and here in the second point, man's external standards actually equal vain worship. And let's see how the text explains that to us. Starting from verse 3. We'll, we'll read verses 3 through 6 and then take it from there. Matthew 15, verse 3. He, Jesus, answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the tradi- sake of your tradition? For God commanded... Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. All right, we need to spend some time here. What just happened in verses 3 through 6? This is Jesus' Response, this is his counter. First, I want to make the observation what Jesus does not do. What Jesus does not do is get all defensive. Oh, well, you know, it was just an ordinary meal. My disciples didn't have to actually, you know, ceremoniously wash. It was just an ordinary meal. No, he doesn't get, go on defense. He goes on offense. And he goes right after their hearts. Okay, guys, this is Jesus, by the way. This is not what we do. We're looking at Jesus because he can read people's hearts. All right, so he references in verses 4 and 5, starting with verse 4, he references one of the Ten Commandments, doesn't he? Right, he's talking about God having commanded, you need to honor your mother and father, right? And we not only see that, right, the, the one of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, but also he's referencing what Exodus 21 says, whoever does not honor his mother, his father. Whoever dishonors, whoever curses his father or his mother 
This is what Exodus 21.17 says. Shall be put to death. Okay? So Old Testament, you need to honor your mother and father. And if you don't, you, should, you shall be put to death. And then Jesus brings up in verse 5 something called the Corbin vow. Okay, and I'm going to explain how these two things are tied together and how the Pharisees and scribes are being hypocritical. A Corban vow, C-O-R-B-A-N, and in Mark chapter 7, 711, it has it for you there. Um, and explains it a little bit more in Mark uh, because he doesn't have a Jewish uh, audience. Uh, Matthew assumes the Jewish folks reading this know what a Corban vow is, so he doesn't mention it. So this is a Corban vow. And guys, let me explain to you what a Corban vow is. It's almost like a will where I take my money and I go devote it to the temple, right? Hey, that sounds pretty spiritual, doesn't it? Right? I'm committing my money to the Lord as an offering, right? It's like a will. That's where, there's, that's where my money's going to go, okay? Sounds pretty noble, right? Pretty honorable. I look pretty holy, don't I? Here's the problem. What Jesus is saying and I'm just going to you know, summarize it and, and distill it for you. What he's saying, what he's doing is he's calling out these hypocrites because what they're doing is they're saying, oh, yeah, we believe in Old Testament law. But guys, they're taking this Corbin law, uh, this vow that they made. Oh, I'm committing my money to the temple. And so I can't honor my mother and father. Do you see what's wrong here? They're using the Corbin vow as an excuse not to obey God's command. They're saying that, hey, uh, this money I can't give to you, my mother and father because honoring your mother and father, as the Jewish understanding, did involve financially supporting them. Well, I can't do that because I've already committed this to the Corbin vow, right? They're just using it as an excuse to not obey the command of God. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus was calling them out on their wicked heart intentions, making this vow, this Corban vow to the temple, just to get out of their obligation to their mother and father. And by the way, just one last detail. With, when they made a Corban vow, they never actually gave their money up. It's like a will. When they die, the money goes to the, the temple. So again, just, just a flat-out excuse uh, to justify not obeying God's command, okay? And now we're going to hear Jesus' conclusion or his indictment in verse, verses 7 through 9. Matthew 15, starting from verse 7, this is what Jesus says. You hypocrites, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? What Isaiah said is, is, is fulfilled in you because you are the hypocrites, he's saying. Look at verse 8, and he's going to explain this, this hypocrisy. This people honor, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, verse 9, in vain do they worship me, teaching as commandments, uh, I'm sorry, the, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus, as he quotes Isaiah Guys, he just provided a definition of vain worship. The question is, what is vain worship? He just, this, he just defined it. Remember the, the question, what does vain worship look like? What is meaningless worship? What, when, when is my worship empty and unacceptable? 
Here's Jesus' explanation. Verse 8, again, notice the contrast. Honoring the Lord with lips, with lip service, with words that come out of my mouth, just because I attend church, but having a heart far from God. Or as the Old Testament, the original language, drawing near with the mouth. See, Jesus is addressing what's external, what people can see, versus what's actually internal. What is in your heart? Right? What's physical versus what's spiritual. And what's being tied in together, guys, is by following, we, this happens when we're following man's commands versus God's commands. Does that make sense? And then that'll kind of flesh out a little more. Let me, let me put it this way. Jesus explains, again, what vain worship is. It's when we, quote unquote, honor God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. And you know how that's tied into man's standards versus God's commands? It's when we're too busy pleasing man. It's when we're too busy pleasing man. There are many ways to do that, but specifically in this context, how does that happen? It happens when our worship and our heart posture values man's opinion over God's truth. That's vain worship. When we value the word of men, oh, this is what other believers do, right? This is how Christians are supposed to act. When we value the word of men over the word of God, guys, we honor the Lord with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. Let me put that another way. When we care more about what people think than what God values, our worship is empty. When we care more about what people think than what God values, what he lays out in Scripture, our worship is empty. Our worship is meaningless. Our worship is vain. Guys, do we drive the church worried about what people are going to think of us? I want to say sorry, but I can't apologize because this is the word of God. He says it. That's vain worship. Are we worried about what people are going to think of us? How I'm dressed? How well I sing? Guys, worship that God accepts, worship that pleases the Lord is not about hitting that high note when we sing. It's about hitting the low note of humility before Almighty God. Instead of worrying about, how, what are other people going to think of me? How about we consider the question, God, what will you think of the worship that I offer you today? God, what will you think about the worship that I offer you today? And as a church family, God, what will you think about the worship that we as the church family, as the body of Christ, lift up to you today? Will it be acceptable or will it be unacceptable? Let me illustrate this. Guys, I want you to imagine a random guy on the street, a random stranger on the street giving a random girl on the street some flowers. Guys, what do you think about that? Is that romantic? 
Well, first, if, you're, if there's some wisdom there, we would stop and say, we would pause and ask, well, I got a lot of questions here. Well, first, I got to ask some questions before we deem that romantic or not. Well, there's not a lot of questions. There's only one question. The one question is, what does that girl think about that guy giving her flowers? That's all that matters. That's the only question that matters. Because obviously the, the conclusion, guys, is one of two things. That gesture, a random guy on the street giving a random girl on the street flowers, it's one of two things. It's either romantic or it's creepy. That's it. There's no, there's no middle ground there. It's either romantic or it's creepy. So I guess the question is, you know, who was it giving the flowers? Was it Ryan Gosling or was it some other <laughs> creepy-looking guy? All that to say, the summary is, if the girl doesn't consider it romantic, it's not romantic, period. There's no neutral ground. Okay, it's either romantic or it's creeper mode. There's no neutral ground. It's one or the other. And so it is with God and what he receives. If God doesn't consider our worship acceptable, it's not just vain worship. It's not just empty worship. It's not just meaningless or without substance. Brothers and sisters, it's an abomination. It is something not just incompatible with God. It's utterly vile in God's eyes. It offends his holy character. Don't we see what he's done to people who would offer strange, uh, strange fire? When we are more concerned about what man thinks, when we think we care more about cultural norms, then we turn around and say to God, oh God, I really care about honoring you. That's vain worship. It's empty worship. It's unacceptable worship. He only receives one kind of worship. Worship that is in spirit and in truth. So the question that you must address in your hearts Are you valuing the approval of man over the word of God? Do you care more about what people think than what God values and lays out in Scripture? Here, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees and scribes, the ones that Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. All they cared about was the approval of man. Man's opinion, man's standards, the tradition of the elders. Where was God in that sentence? He wasn't. And if it's man-centered approval you and I are concerned about, then John 12.43 applies here. John 12.43, then you and I love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We're more concerned about man's glory than God's glory. If that's, it's that, if that's where we operate, right here on man's level. Here's the warning for us as believers. Guys, we can do 
all the externally Christian behaviors. We can attend church. We can tell people that we're reading our Bibles. Yet offer, uh, we can do all that, yet offer God worship that is vain. Guys, if our motive uh, for, for these, these visible, uh, external Christian behaviors, if the motive for that is, is, is man-centered and it's for man's approval and we just care about what man thinks and we're looking over our shoulder, ooh, what is man going to think about me? Then everything that we offer up to God is vain worship. And this, in God's eyes, is unacceptable worship. Again, the contrast, again, worshiping merely with our, uh, only with our lips near to God versus hearts that are actually near to God. That which is external merely versus the internal. That which man can see versus that which only God can see. Caring more about what people think versus valuing and obeying and delighting in God's commands. So, to recap, the Pharisees accused Jesus with man's standards. Jesus responded with God's standards and explains that man's external standards, that is vain worship. Now we get to our third part. Part 3, verses 10 through 20, Jesus explains what God considers defiled. And that's what, that's what we need to root out. We need to root out the defilement in our hearts. And he's explaining, our third point, that defilement comes from the heart. Jesus explains now in in this last section, verses 10 through 20, how man's standards are wrong. Uh, Just a quick note, uh, there were lots of crowds that followed Jesus in his ministry, and as he's having this interaction with the Pharisees and scribes, there are other people around. And so in verse 10, the crowd that was listening to all this, he actually turns to them. And he wants the crowd to get this. Why? Because he's already concluded that the Pharisees and scribes have rejected this. So he's turning to the people and saying, hey, you need to, hear, you need to listen to this. Uh, let's start with verses 10 and 11. Starting from verse 10. And he called the people to him and said to him, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Uh, what we're missing in the Matthew account is what uh, Mark fills in. And at the very outset, uh, right, we had that question, hey, Jesus, how come you and your disciples, uh, your disciples, are, uh, they're, they're, they're eating bread without washing their hands ceremoniously, right? Uh, in the Mark uh, passage, it actually uses the word defiled. You're, you're, you're using, you have defiled hands. You're not ceremoniously cleansed. Okay, so that's the theme here. So here, Jesus is using that word, that which is defiled, and he's explaining to the people that they're wrong. The Pharisees and scribes are wrong. It's not what goes in, right? What goes in starts from the external, right? He's saying what's out here, what's external, okay, the, you know, the hand washing and all that. That's not what defiles you. It's actually what comes out. What comes out is, is sourced from where? It's sourced from your heart. It's sourced from what's internal. 
And, and again, I, I want to reference Mark's gospel where it, it starts to by emphasizing Jesus' authority and he actually declared all foods clean. Uh, so guys, Mark chapter 7 is actually the bacon chapter. That's why bacon is not only okay, it is good. And we give thanks, First Timothy 4, for everything that God's given us. He declared all foods clean. So we don't have, it, we're not ceremoniously unclean if we eat bacon. I'm, I'm not even joking. Mark 7, Jesus said it. He declared all foods clean. Thank you, Lord. All right, and so here, you know, Matthew spends a little more time uh, accounting uh, what Jesus is doing, you know, uh, coming after the Pharisees and Jews. All right, and so in verse 12 now, he explains this, but verse 12, we see the disciples' response. Take a look at verse 12. We see what the disciples say. Notice their response to Jesus, just explaining that, guys, it's what's internal that defiles us, not externalism and all that. Verse 12, then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? This was offensive. The word scandalizo, right? Scandalous. This is offensive. Guys, Jesus' words were offensive back then. And Jesus' words are offensive today. All you got to do is ask somebody, what do you think about Jesus? That's offensive. I, I, I'm not telling you to go do this, but I guarantee you, if you go on college campuses today and ask them about Jesus, I guarantee if you spend a few hours doing that, you will not come away not having been cussed out. I guarantee it. You might even be banned. I'm not, you, you just go check and see what's going on in this country. You might be banned from that campus. If you go around asking, what do you think about Jesus? Jesus' words were offensive then. They are offensive today. And why is that the case? Because God's holiness exposes man's sin. Right? John chapter 3, this is the judgment. The light, Jesus, has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. They hate Jesus and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. They don't like Jesus because Jesus exposes our sin. It's offensive to say that that we have sin, which is why Jesus said in Matthew 11, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, Jesus says. So, hearing the disciples' response, Jesus responds with an analogy to describe the Pharisees and scribes in verse 13. Here's his response to his disciples saying, hey, Jesus, yeah. I'm not sure why he said that. You offended these guys. And Jesus says, he, uh, he answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. If that sounds like judgment language, then ding, ding, ding. Proper hermeneutics. Uh, that, that's Isaiah's language. That's judgment language. And there's a, uh, obviously an allusion to the parable of the weeds that Jesus gives two chapters ago. Right? There were good seeds that were planted, which Jesus reveals these are the sons of the kingdom. And then there were the weeds, 
right? You got your plants, the good ones, and then you got your weeds. Those were sons of the evil one. The enemy is the one who sowed those weeds, Jesus explains, and that's the devil, he says, in Matthew 13. So Jesus, how does he respond? He describes the Pharisees and scribes. And as he describes them, what does he do? He disowns them. He declares them not belonging to the kingdom of God. And so he goes on in verse 14, let them alone. They, these Pharisees and scribes, they're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit, which is why Jesus, what did he do? He had compassion. Did you see it? He had compassion on the crowd. He turned around and addressed them because he knows who these guys are. So he turns around and addresses the crowd, having compassion on them. That's his ministry. And Jesus, obviously, he can say something like this because he knew that the Pharisees and scribes did not belong to the kingdom of God. I do want to take a moment and pause and, and address, you know, if, if, if at any time you and I are, are struggling with external acts, if we're struggling with the, the external Christian behavior, and if we're struggling with the heart motive, I do want to caution you You need to examine yourself, obviously. Paul says to the Corinthians, examine yourself, see if you're of the faith. But you can't conclude that if I'm struggling with my my life, my uh, motives, well, maybe maybe then do I not belong to the, the kingdom of God? Well, again, just search the scriptures. Answer this question. Uh, I'm just going to borrow it from uh, R.C. Sproul. Do you have any affection for the Jesus of the Bible? Do you have affection for the Jesus of the Bible? Because the unbeliever does not. And remember what Jesus says. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and what do they do? They follow me, right? They follow Christ. These Pharisees and scribes, though, they weren't, uh, hearing, they weren't per, uh, understanding, as Isaiah uh, prophesies about them. Seeing, they weren't perceiving. Now let's remember, when it comes to um, you know, the seasons of struggle that you and I might face, uh, I, I, I want to ask you a question, just taking right from 2 Thessalonians 2.10. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 uh, describes the evil one, Antichrist, and followers who are wicked, Describing those who are perishing, and you know what it says there? It says that they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Do you love the truth? Do you love God's word? Because God's word is every expression of God he wanted us to have, which also describes his son Jesus. Okay, these guys are blind guides. They do not love the truth. They do not hear Jesus' voice. They do not follow Jesus. Jesus explains that these guys are blind guides and the Father didn't plant them. They will be uprooted. Right? He tells us that the angels will come and separate the plants from the weeds. 
And then now back to our passage and looking at verse 15. Matthew 15, 15, we have Peter. You guys remember Peter? Do you guys know who Peter is? Guys, Peter's that guy in class that you didn't like because he would always ask too many questions, right? He would raise his hand, like, can you stop? She's going to let us out to recess. Stop asking questions, right? But he keeps asking questions. But you know what? Secretly, you like Peter. You know why? He asks questions when you stop paying attention. Well, what did you say? Oh, it's okay. Peter's going to raise his hand, and he'll ask the question. And so here's Peter in classic form. I mean, we're, we're hard on Peter, but he, he was the representative, so... Uh, verse 15, Peter said to Jesus, explain the parable to us. And so verse 16 on, Jesus explains the parable uh, to his disciples. And he said, verse 16, are you still without understanding? Verse 17, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Guys, Jesus is being literal. He, don't you see that whatever goes in you, whatever you eat, it goes through your system and it's expelled into, he's using the word for toilet. Okay? So it's not what you eat, right? What goes in that defiles you. You're not ceremoniously unclean before God because of what you ate. Verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. Matthew 15, 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These, verse 20, are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus is saying it's a heart issue. It's always been a heart issue. What defiles us is what's in the heart, not outward behaviors or the failure to behave a certain way. All those things are just reflective of what's in our hearts. The heart is what needs to be addressed. The first thing that Jesus mentions on this list evil thoughts. Evil thoughts. Guys, we can't get past even that. Our thinking alone is the Disneyland of sin. Our hearts, our, our thinking, to where sin plays. The devil's playground is our thoughts. Just that alone. This is why, you know, this is why external standards are not the measure, right? Just because we get all the external Christian-y behavior right, we can do all that and look right on the outside and yet sin in our hearts. Jesus follows up with what most would consider, you know, quote-unquote, the really bad ones, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, and theft out of the heart come the thoughts that lead to murder. You, you do remember Jesus' definition of murder, right? Anger. Anger in the heart equals murder. You are guilty of murder in God's eyes. doesn't matter if California law doesn't put you away in jail. In God's eyes, 
which is the only eyes that matter, you and I are guilty, which is why we need Christ. Out of the, th- the heart come the thoughts that lead to murder, adultery, sexual immorality. Right? We don't need to stop someone's heartbeat to be guilty of murder. Just thinking of it is sin. We can be guilty of murder then, Jesus says, sitting absolutely still, silently seething in traffic, in our cubicles, in our cushioned chairs. And this is what defiles us. So obviously we're not to pat ourselves on the back if we're just getting the outward behavior, right? Jesus also mentions false witness and slander, right? These seemingly harmless little things are also mentioned in the same breath as murder and adultery, right? To lie, to denigrate someone. Jesus mentions slander, right? Saying things about someone that defames that person, speaking abusively, disrespectfully, saying things behind someone's back that we wouldn't dare speak to their face. And we need to be careful then what comes out of our mouths because it's a reflection of our hearts. If you're keeping up with the uh, New Testament reading plan or if you just haven't, I would encourage you to read James chapter 3. In James chapter 3, uh, verses 9 through 11, James is telling us about our mouths. He's warning us about our mouths. Saying, with it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people made in the image uh, in the likeness of God, from the mouth come, uh, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. This cannot be. James is saying, follower of Christ, it cannot be that we would bless someone, bless the Lord with our mouth, and turn around and curse someone made in His image. Jesus is saying that the issue is what comes out of the mouth because that's what's coming out of the heart. I think we're all familiar with the Hebrews 4.12 passage. You know, the word of God is living and active, which is also describing Jesus, right? Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints of marrow, and discerning, the word of God does, discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. See why we need to read scripture? Because as we read it, it cuts, it cuts into our hearts and it, it discerns our thoughts and intentions. So I, haven't you read the Bible and all of a sudden think, wow, this passage doesn't seem to have anything to do with me, but for some reason it's convicting me. I need to repent. I need to repent. I think we're familiar with Hebrews 4.12 and then we kind of forget about the very next verse, Hebrews 4.13. It says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We all give an account to God. So let's circle back, as they say in Zoom meetings. So when it comes to discerning, sorry, was that a trigger? Sorry. Uh, When it comes to discerning what is pure versus profane, like, no, let's not circle back but we need to. This is God's word. When it comes to discerning what is pure versus profane, what is decent versus defiled, the issue of honoring God, worshiping God, nearness to God, guys, it's not about the external. 
but what's internal. It's not about, uh, it's not what's external that defiles us. Let me pause. I, let, me, let me add a, f- a footnote to that. Guys, it doesn't mean we go and, and, and watch the, the, the worst slasher movies, you know, all Saturday night and say, ooh, I'm, I'm awake now. I'm ready to worship the Lord. Right? Those things start to affect our thinking and our hearts. Okay? And it's not just slasher films, right? It's just, uh, I remember uh, 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 some movies. Uh, I'm just going to, oh, okay, should I do this? Okay, so there's a, a, when Harry Potter was out, I remember we were standing there and a bunch of us asked this, this pastor, hey, can we watch, uh, can Christians watch Harry Potter? Uh, and he just asked uh, in very Jesus form, right? I'm not here to bash on Harry Potter. He just asked the question, it's not about Harry Potter too. It's any movie. Can you watch that movie and come out glorifying God? Can you watch that movie or read that book or watch that TV show and at the end of it glorify God? Uh, and, and that was very convicting for me when I watched a certain horror movie. And for me, I was done. I was absolutely done after that. This, I won't even mention it. Okay? Years ago, I'm done because right? of what it did to my heart. I'm, yeah. So anyways, um, it's not what it, what's external. Uh, but we do need to be careful about what we put into our hearts, okay? Because that becomes internal. Guys, being near to God does not depend on keeping up appearances that man looks at, right? First Samuel 16, what did, what did God say there through, through his prophet? The Lord uh, sees not what, uh, as man sees, right? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart, and that's where there's this defilement. That's where we need cleansing, right? When, 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 when Isaiah, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he cries out, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. When he's saying that, he's, he's saying that my lips reflect what's in my heart and in front of a holy God, he recognized, woe is me. It was just actually like this agonizing cry of grief because he stood unclean before a holy God. And he needed God to take away his iniquity. And so he actually had the seraphim cleanse his lips. You see, God, obviously he knows our hearts. He's referred to the heart knower in in Acts chapter 15. And God, the heart knower, right? He knows your hearts. He bore witness giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Okay, so what that passage says is that God is not only the heart knower, he knows everything about your heart, but he's also the heart cleanser. He's the only one who can cleanse your heart. Right? It's about purity before God. And who does the cleansing? Who does the purifying? Christ alone. Christ alone. God is the one who cleanses, and God is the one who deserves worship. God is to receive our worship, not with just mere externalism, not just what we do on the outside, and certainly not to please man, but with our hearts. So that's why when it comes to uh, the, the application for us as we consider this passage, our application, guys, comes nicely packaged in one word, one word, motive, or one question. I'll even shorten it to three letters. 
It's the question, why? If you want to apply this passage, all you need to do is answer the question, why? Why do you do what you do? Why do you sing? Why do you pray? It's also a three-letter answer, right? It's God. Not the other three-letter answer, man. Why do you go to church? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you work where you work? Why do you study what you're studying? Why are you raising a family? It's all the same answer. It's for God. All these things that are meant for good, right? unfortunately, we can offer God vain worship. How do we do that? It's again, by caring more what people think, worrying about man's traditions, the tradition of man, than what God values, than what God lays out in Scripture. It's the why question. It's the motive. And that's what honors God. Right? Uh, parents know this. Right? Parents know that when a child comes home with, uh, with a piece of paper and just the ugliest piece of art on that, I mean, it's ugly. But then the child, with two hands, lifts up that piece of paper and says, Mama, this is for you. You don't think Mama receives that? You don't think that pleases Mama? That's what worship is. It's when the child of God comes with the ugliest piece of art that is our lives and says, God, This is for you. I know I'm ugly. I know I'm messed up. But I have Jesus. And this is for you. My life is for you. All we need to do is answer one question. That's all you guys need to do is carry one question in your pockets. Why? Why do you do what you do? We ask God to examine our hearts. God, am I doing this to glorify you? Am I doing this to honor you? Am I doing this in trust of who you are, that you are loving God? Do I respond to your character the way you want a child of God to respond? Let me me point out the obvious, because sometimes we need that, don't we? We need the obvious to be pointed out. Here's the obvious. God does not measure our hearts with a calculator. He doesn't add how many times you did something. God doesn't measure our hearts with a stopwatch. He doesn't click. Oh, dear God, click. All right, timer's going. Let's see how long this guy prays. Click. Oh, that was fast. He fell asleep, right? That's not how God measures our hearts. Instead, God examines our hearts, as one preacher said, with a stethoscope. That's how he measures it. He checks our hearts. And all of us, I think, we all understand this, this response in our hearts Well, where we, we hit seasons and we say, well, I'm struggling. Yeah, I struggle too. Don't you struggle? I struggle. Do you struggle? 
Well, let me just talk briefly about uh, three areas of struggle uh, and just as it pertains to kind of this, this issue and then uh, try to address that very briefly. Sorry, I know this is uh, kind of an all-over-the-place sermon today. Uh, this, uh, number one, the struggle of sincerity. Number one, the struggle of sincerity. Am I sincere in doing what I do for God? When I answer, ask that question, why? Uh, am I sincere enough? Am I doing this uh, uh, sincerely? And when I use the word sincerely, I, I'm borrowing from uh, the way Scripture uses the word. So in Colossians 3, remember we, we work sincerely as unto the Lord, not, not as people pleasers. Right? That, that actually fits in nicely with what we're talking about. Uh, and in uh, Romans 12, we're to love without hypocrisy. We're to love sincerely. Uh, that, the, the wording there in the Bible, when it says to do something sincerely, it has the idea of single-mindedness. Single-mindedness, right? We have one motive for doing what we're doing, and that's God. Right? That's sincerity. That's, that's you know, when we're struggling, am I, am I sincere? Well, go back and run it through the filter and ask yourselves, am I doing this for man's approval? How do we know if we're doing things for man's approval? Uh, well, we're usually, uh, one giveaway is that we're constantly looking over our shoulder. We're constantly thinking, are, are, are people watching me? Are people uh, you know, evaluating my external behavior? What does that have to do with God? Did you see that? Oh, you know, if I walk in here and I, I'm living a certain way, wow, there, there was no fear of God right there. There's just fear of man. Oh, are people watching me? Are they assessing me? Guys, we have an almighty God that, that, that we're, we're living our lives before. It's a question that, you know, uh, you know, are we motivated by the fact that people are watching? And right there, that reveals that we're valuing the opinion of man over the uh, assessment of God who knows our hearts. Okay, so that's the struggle of sincerity. Ask the question, am I doing this for God or, and how much am I affected by the desire for the approval of man or fear of what man would say? So that's the struggle of sincerity. Uh, number two, the struggle of sufficiency. Number two, the struggle of sufficiency. Others might struggle with uh, this question of, have I done enough? Oh, I messed up. I sinned. I need to repent. Was my repentance enough? Did I pray hard enough? I'm going to quote uh, a guy named Michael Horton when it comes to this question of sufficiency. Some Christians, he says, struggle to the point of despair over their, whether the quality or degree of their repentance is adequate to be forgiven. Right? Some Christians struggle to the point of despair over whether the quality or degree of their repentance is adequate to be forgiven, as if, as if the repentance were the ground of forgiveness and repentance could be measured by the intensity of emotion and resolve. Was I intense enough in my prayer. Where, where is that in the Bible? D.A. Carson puts it this way. Let me just paraphrase. It's going to take too long. Do you notice that uh, in the Passover, God didn't go and, and check, hey, how are you behaving inside that house 
before the angel of death came? No. What did he check for? What did he check for? He checked for the blood on the post. Right? He wasn't looking at the external behavior. At the end of the day, he checked, is there the, the blood of the lamb on the post? That's sufficient. Okay, so it's not about the intensity of our prayer. Was my, was my repentance sufficient? Guys, Christ was sufficient. And if you're not looking to Christ, then that's, you're already man-centered. You're thinking, oh, did I, did, I, did I worship hard enough? What does that even mean, worship hard enough? And I'll bring it up too. That's very Asian. It really is. Did I do something hard enough? Did I work hard enough? I'm telling you right now, I, I love Saving Private Ryan, and I've watched that for a period of my life every year on Memorial Day. But it kind of messed me up. It kind of messed me up because, oh man, this is kind of spoiler alert. I want you to watch it. But at one point, there's one character who's dying and another character who was saved. I won't say who, but the title might give it away. So in the movie Saving Private Ryan... One character who was dying said to the other who was saved, and he pulled him in close. Well, he was, he was wounded, so he's about to die. And he starts whispering something. He says, what? Sir, what'd you say? And he pulled him in close, and he said, earn this. Earn it. And that, honestly, that kind of messed me up because I felt like in my Christian life, I had to keep earning it. Guys, you don't have to keep earning it. Christ doesn't have to keep getting crucified. He got crucified one time and it was enough. Guys, his blood is on, uh, on the post of your heart if you've submitted to the Lord Jesus and that's enough. Doesn't mean go out and be a lazy Christian, but that is enough. Christ's righteousness is imputed into your hearts. Scripture says that it's not our tears, it's not our intensity, but it's Christ's blood that satisfies God's judgment and establishes peace with us, according to Romans. The question of sufficiency must be answered by God himself. What did he say about sufficiency? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for you, what did Paul say in response to that? And he says, well, then, therefore, I will boast all the more of my, uh, uh, my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And for the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God is sufficient. So we had the uh, struggle of sincerity, struggle of... Um, Sincerity before that. Thirdly, the struggle of shame. Uh, so I kind of, it, it kind of worked out. Uh, the men's all uh, the all day fellowship. I'm gonna delve. I want to delve into this part a little more, but I'll just touch on it today. A struggle of shame, and I, I'm actually serious. When I, I'm not joking about the Asian thing, that does bleed into for a lot of Asians. It bleeds into how we view God. Uh, there are a lot of cultural things. Uh, why? Well, look at the question of shame. Uh, certain cultures, yeah, they, 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 they botch up the shame thing uh, as if we have to hold on to shame still. Uh, some struggle with this because when we examine our hearts, the why question comes, there's always shame. There's always shame, 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 shame and guilt. 
Uh, and to summarize it, that's actually a misunderstanding of grace. We don't truly understand grace. I know I can pass out paper and you can write a definition of grace, but if we're still struggling with shame, we're not completely understanding grace. Right? I think we're, and we're afraid of going the opposite end of, and abusing grace. Oh, then I'll just live in sin. No, we're not, we're not here in, in, in the middle understanding grace because if we're continually condemning ourselves, continually living in shame, right? I mean, if you're continuing, uh, persisting in a pattern of sin, that needs to be addressed too. But if there's shame, then I, I don't know that you understand what Christ did on the cross. We actually, we're, we're cheapening the cross, Philip the Corsi said. Right? Guys, when, when, when uh, Jesus died, he died for all of your past sins and for the shame that went with that. When Jesus died, he died for your present sins. That includes the shame that's supposed to come with it. When Jesus died, he paid for your future sins that you will commit, and that includes the shame that's supposed to come with it. Guys, Jesus paid it all. That's why Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he paid it all. Jesus didn't drink 99% of God's wrath and leave you with 1%. That 1% would obliterate you. Jesus drank it all. What do we do? We don't condemn ourselves. We confess. We, we render Christ. We run to the cross, and there's no condemnation there. And if you're looking to your own strength, well, that's where there's a lot of times there's shame. Right? When you're looking at man's standards, well, you're going to continue living in shame. When you uh, operate on man's approval, that level, okay, what we need to do is set our eyes on Christ. And I know that's a very christian thing to say. What does that mean, set your eyes on Christ? Well, let me borrow from uh, Calvin. He said, If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion. If purity, in his conception. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. Okay, let me, let me pause for a moment. Here's what he's saying. If you want strength, stop trying to just be strong. No, it, if we seek it, it lies in his dominion, in Christ's strength. If we're looking for purity, you want an example of purity? It's not in you, it's in his conception. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. That, mean, that word used to mean suffering. Right? You want to be redeemed from sin? You go find it in his suffering on the cross. If acquittal, in his condemnation. If purification, in his blood. In newness of life, in his resurrection. You want new life? Stop trying to self-help yourself. You find it in his resurrection. That's new life. Set our eyes on Christ. And obviously the Bible never said that living our life of faith Never said it was going to be easy. But what's, what's hard slash impossible is living according to man's standards, man's traditions. Right? You know why? Because it's never enough. You're constantly looking over your shoulder. That's why Martin Luther, he, he couldn't figure it out. How much is enough? I got to keep doing this and how much? How much? And then God opened his eyes and his heart and he realized 
Justification by faith. Christ is enough. We're not to look to man's standards of what honors God. We don't listen to man's standards. Man is not your king. The Lord is. Christ, he is our savior. He is our sovereign king. He's our shepherd. He needs the standard. So let me kind of flip things around and put it this way. Guys, your failure to meet man's standards does not defile you. Do you get that? Your failure to meet man's standards does not defile you. Well, well, but, you know, people might make a judgment about me if I don't do this enough. Well, if I don't do, do that, then people might think this about me. Or if I don't go to this event, they might think that I'm... I'm sorry, where was God in, in, in those thoughts? Nowhere to be found. Guys, we're not to be looking over our shoulder, making sure we're keeping up appearances before man. That's vain worship. But what we have is the opportunity, as per Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Or just the classic hymn that we've sung, I'd rather have Jesus than man's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. Okay, I know this passage and this time is very much, uh, you know, here's what's def- you know, what defiles us. But again, I want you to think back to the child who brings home that ugly piece of art, but with all sincerity offers, offers it up and says, this is for you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Romans 12, we read. That language is the language of Old Testament sacrifice. Present your bodies as a sacrifice that's living, holy, and acceptable. You give your whole body, your whole self, your entire life to God. That's worship that he accepts. That's worship that's pure. When it's in spirit and in truth, and say, Jesus, it's all I have. God, all I have is Christ. Well, let's pray together and prepare our hearts for communion.